Welcome to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Getting Common covers a variety of topics and features guests from business, law, politics, government, education, and some of the most insightful entrepreneurs. It's a refreshing common sense approach to some of the most important discussion points today. Now, here is your host, Carlos Chapman. Hello, everyone. I am Carlos Chapman, and I'm your host of Getting Common. In my day job, I'm an associate professor at Washington Lee University's Law School. Today's episode features Megan Boone of Wake Forest, who will speak with us about ownership of the body, particularly in light of the Dobbs decision. I'll start by having her introduce herself. Go ahead, Megan. Hi there. Uh, My name is Megan Boone, and I'm an associate professor at Wake Forest University School of Law, where I teach and write in the areas of constitutional rights, family law, and reproductive justice. Awesome. Well, I'm very excited to have Megan because, you know, while I dabble in personhood and that's like my entree into like, you know, reproductive rights, Megan actually does this all the time. So um, she knows a lot more than I do and we can we can have a hopefully a good, good discussion. So I'd like to start with some legal basics. Um, first of all, does the law deem us to be owners of our own bodies in the way that we like own a car or own a house? Um, so I know you frame that question as like a basic sort of table setting question. And I have to say the law is like surprisingly complicated in this area. It's a surprisingly complicated question. Um, So I have to start with the the go-to law professor answer, right? Which is like, it depends. Um, So when we're talking about ownership of the body, to a certain extent, we're talking about the idea of sort of a property right in your own body. And I'm not necessarily a property law scholar, But we think about property as having sort of two types of features. The first is that we think of property as a thing, right, an object. Um, And that property law involves sort of a bundle of different types of rights that are associated with that thing, with that object, Um, like the right to exclude others from it, the right to sell or transfer it, et cetera. So our bodies in the law sort of defy expectations in both of those categories. So our bodies are things in that they are sort of physically bounded objects, right? They move through space, um, but they're also people. So we're sort of simultaneously objects and subjects, humans, um, which defies categorization in the same way that other objects do. Um, And the second way we sort of are problematized when we think about owning a body is that some of the rights traditionally associated with property, we do have in our bodies, right? Like we generally have a pretty robust right to exclude others. Um, We sometimes, but not always, have the right to sell it or its labor or its component parts. Um, We literally cannot transfer it, right? No other person can exist in our body uh, if we lose our body, right? If we die, it's not like we can get another. So, the idea of owning, sort of having property on our body, owning our body is actually really complicated. And the law surrounding sort of the physical body really reflects this complicated circumstance. Um, Sometimes it treats us as if we own our bodies and sometimes it does not, sort of depending on the context. Well, you know, I think what confuses people, um, and even I will say for people who are lay people, even lawyers and legal scholars get confused on this, you know, are two concepts, one marriage and slavery, right? Like you could buy and sell people in slavery. And then with marriage, you know, I mean, until more recently than we would like to acknowledge, it was thought that a wife was property of her, 
of her husband. And so in ending those two things, I think people think, well, now I just own myself because we ended these two institutions that deemed you to be property of another person. Yeah. And I think honestly, some of the discomfort um, in talking about ownership of body, even your own body actually comes from these sort of historical precedents where other people owned, right? So if we, if anyone can own your body, then it opens the door a crack maybe to the idea that somebody else could own your body, right? In slavery or in marriage. Um, So I think the sort of tension and discomfort is like, we don't like to think about ownership of body because it reduces body to property and to an object. And if we reduce body to property and object, then we sort of open the discussion about somebody else besides you owning that physical object. And that is obviously deeply problematic and we have bad history there. So I think you're right to sort of point to those historical um, antecedents about like the the way we think about this and the way, the reasons that the idea of ownership of body is a little bit complicated. Of course, we want people to own their own bodies more so than we want them to be available to others. But the second we talk about ownership, we're talking about objects and that is potentially sort of uncomfortable and problematic. Yeah. And I'll say, you know, it's it's interesting to me in the feminist scholarship, for example, um, there are people who will say, you know, women's autonomy means they own their own bodies. And other feminist scholars will say autonomy means we're not objects and we can't be owned. And there, there are these two schools of thought in the scholarship. Um, and so I want to flag that for people because if you're out there just reading, um, it's interesting to me how you know, very seasoned people come down very hard and there's not a lot of agreement on people who pick one side or the other. Um, So it can be especially confusing for students and lay people who are out there using the Google and trying to figure out what the loss is. Absolutely. And and these are people who generally agree about a lot of things, right? Um, But even catchphrases like my body, my choice sort of represents that tension that you're talking about, which is well, it is my body, but it's also me as a subjective human person. And I'm more than a body. So I'm not sure I like that. Um, I honestly, like, I feel like depending on the context, I'm comfortable talking about the human body in more than one way, but you're right to say that certain people have a, have a more black or white um, view about the way that we ought to talk about people and the way that we ought to talk about bodies. Absolutely. So my, my, I'm going to throw a series of questions out there for you. um, because. When we say we own our bodies, the kind of questions I get, especially because I do corporate personhood and they're like, well, you can buy and sell a corporation. So can I buy and sell myself? And it's like, no, not quite. And so we just, I just want to run through a few, what I consider to be simple things, but probably aren't. So um, first, can we buy and sell our body parts? Like, can I go on eBay and like list my kidney for sale? No. Um, (laughs) I don't suggest that. Uh, no, so we we can't sell our organs. Um, you can donate them, right, under highly sort of regulated circumstances. Um, and that is sometimes complicated because your donation can include sort of cash payments meant to sort of compensate you for the time and cost of that donation, but it's still considered a donation. Um But, and I should say too, there's a distinction here when we're talking about living bodies. So there are, there are different rules about the sale of dead bodies where there is 
much more of a, a market um, and some sort of unsavory things have happened. But when we're talking about living bodies in general, you can't sell your body parts with some exceptions, which I think we're probably going to talk about. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, is what is the difference between being paid for blood or to donate sperm or eggs and donating a kidney? So I will, I will say some people don't think it's different, right? Some people say we shouldn't, there shouldn't be commodity in physical human bodies and sort of full stop. Um, but you can legally sell a lot of these things, right? You can sell, um, your blood, your sperm, your eggs, your hair, in some places, bone marrow or bone plasma. Uh, you can sort of sell your skin through, um, agreeing to have advertisements tattooed on your physical body, right? These are all different sort of types of, of sales. Um, the, the sort of common arguments about why this is different than selling your kidney are a couple. Um, the first is that most of these things are naturally replenished by your body in the way a kidney certainly would not be, right? You can't regrow, regrow a kidney, but you can grow your hair. You can regrow uh, your Uh, you can, you sort of grow new sperm or new blood, right? Your body can naturally replenish this. Now, eggs are different because you can't actually replenish eggs, but um, there's an idea that they're sort of so plentiful that it, it feels okay. Um, Another reason that the, the people point to a difference is the idea that these things are sort of severable. You can, you can cut them out without affecting the the organism, the body as a whole, right? So I can cut my hair and my body still works the same. But if I cut out a kidney, even if my body still works with one kidney, I've changed the sort of um, underlying function of the body. But really, I feel like the the main points, like underlying the difference about what we can sell and what we can't, is really public policy concerns about what happens when we create a market for body parts and who is going to be affected and who is going to be exploited. Um, and the idea that the prohibition about against selling a lot of sort of human body parts is just to protect vulnerable people um, from selling their organs for profit because they don't have any other option. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, this is the hardest one. Um, I teach in-ray baby M on my first day of contracts and students are like, wait, why is that okay? Why is it not okay? So, you know, in this framework, how does surrogacy work? Um, and why isn't surrogacy deemed to be like selling a baby instead of like, what are you selling when you do surrogacy or are you selling at all? Yeah. And I mean, hearkening back to our earlier conversation, if there is one topic that really divides sort of feminist thinkers um, who might agree on lots of different things, but disagree vehemently, it is surrogacy, right? That like some people absolutely think that it is selling a baby and that it is commodification of the worst type. And some people are fine with it and think it should be legal and regulated. Um the theory, right, is that you're not selling a baby. You're selling uh, your labor in creating that baby in the same way that you sort of sell your body when you perform all sorts of labor, right? So if you have a job that inc- uh, includes physical labor of any type, you're selling the strength of your back or the uh, dexterity of your hands. Or even if you're in a job like you and I are in, right, you're selling your brain power. That's part of your body. We don't think about it like that. 
Um, but the idea at least is surrogacy is you're sort of selling your labor to perform a task. You're using your body to perform that task in the same way that we all use our bodies in lots of ways. Um, now, some people dispute this analogy, right? Uh, that the act of gestating a baby is sort of fundamentally different. Um, it's more intimate or it's more vulnerable, or there's something in, sort of inherently problematic about commodifying reproductive capacity. Um, I'm happy to share what I think if you're interested. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to hear what you think. Because, you know, when I teach baby yeah. um, this you know, the, the case runs through all of the parameters and kind of safeguards that the that the agency put in place. You know, there's a psyche valve. Um, they they don't let people be surrogates who haven't already had their own children. Um, with the thought that yes, giving birth to a baby is special, and even if it's someone else's sperm and egg, like you have carried this this being in your body and you will bond to it. So we need to make sure that you know what that's like before you do it. And you know, it's I like to teach it on the first day of contracts because it makes people kind of fight. <laughs> on the first day of contracts, because you see people's strong arguments and, you know, a lot of them are moral and some of them are trying to be legal. So I'd love to hear, you know, your legal opinion on surrogacy. Yeah, I come down sort of on the the place where we already commodify reproduction in our society. Like I think that to me is just facts on the ground. Um, and if we're going to live in a world that commodifies reproduction, I sort of bulk at a framework that says that everybody else can exploit and profit sort of in the reproductive space, except for the people who do the real crazy, dangerous, hard work of actually making a baby. And those people are not allowed to profit off their reproductive labor because we, and I'm sort of using the we as like, as in society, don't like the idea of that thing, which we have decided is sacred and special and different, um, being commodified. So I'm not sure I could act as a gestational surrogate, right? Like I've had, I have my own children, I've experienced pregnancy. I, I, I'm not sure I could do that, but I also don't feel like I'm in a space to tell anyone else that they couldn't do that. And I've actually, in my prior life as a real lawyer, um, represented a number of surrogates and gotten to sort of hear about their experiences. And they talk about it the same way that I talk about my job, right? They love it. They're good at it. They think that it's really important. They're able to do something for someone else that that person wouldn't have access to otherwise. Um, and it's hard and it's dangerous. And is it, it do they love it every day? No, but like, I just, I can't ignore that for those women who are not being exploited, who are choosing it freely, again, they, they talk about it in a, in a way that would sound like any job that you happen to love. Um, so again, if we're going to commodify reproduction and we do commodify reproduction, then I think the people who are doing the hardest job uh, on the assembly line ought to get a cut. Well, and I think some of it goes to, and, and this is a, a big part of the discussion we get into on the first day of contracts, you know, why do we as a society distrust women so much that we think the hormones are going to get in the way and they're going to want to keep every baby they give birth to? Um, and we already know that's not true in general, but it, I think it comes down to the judgment calls we make about people who would put a baby up for adoption, the, the judgment calls we make about a woman who would have an abortion and therefore 
because we impose those social norms on everyone, we think anyone who wants to give up a baby must have something wrong with her. And therefore, you know, we got to put our social and moral, you know, norms on top of it. Um, so, which is essentially what happens in baby M the case, you know, I point out for the students, how that judge is, you know, talking negatively about the woman who's a surrogate, but also talking negatively about the woman who wasn't able to carry a child. And it's, it's just, a it's laden with misogyny and not much law in the case. And I think that's kind of hallmark of this area where people forget just legal basics and want to make judgment calls about women. Our sort of foundational ideas about uh, women and motherhood, I think are so deeply entrenched that like you say, like we don't even see that we're making moral arguments. We think we're making arguments just about the way the world is and don't leave any space for the experience of pregnancy or motherhood that deviates from that script. Um, But it's so deep down in there. It's so ingrained that like even very smart people can make arguments about how could any woman do X without realizing all the sort of underlying assumptions that that, um, exist under that statement, right? The sort of assumptions about uh, motherhood and uh, about sort of altruistic motherhood and the way that we are supposed to feel as women about children and babies and pregnancy. And I just don't, that's just not right. So that's not the lived experience of a lot of women. There's all sorts of ways to feel about pregnancy and motherhood. So the last question, and I separated this out from, you know, blood and sperm and eggs is breast milk. And the reason I put this. Oh yeah. I've got so much to say about this, Carlos. (laughs) Well, the reason I I watched this Netflix special or maybe it was either Netflix or Hulu where like bodybuilders were buying breast milk because they thought it had more protein. And they're like these Facebook groups and stuff where you can like buy and sell breast milk. Yep. So legally, like what is happening with breast milk? Cause it, it kind of fascinates me. Yeah. So I actually wrote an article several years ago um, that didn't deal specifically with the sort of commodification of breast milk, but that was sort of part of it. Um, and, And I think it is so fascinating and it's fascinating on a lot of different uh, levels. Breast milk is an incredibly valuable resource, right? Like an ounce of breast milk is worth more than an ounce of crude oil, right? Like it's, it's extremely valuable. Um, and we've got a system in this country where three different things are happening on the breast milk market and the people who are participating in the market don't always recognize those distinctions. So we've got true nonprofit sort of breast milk banks that you can donate, right? Your breast milk. Um, and it goes sort of, you don't get any financial compensation for it. And it generally goes to NICUs um, to help very premature babies who wouldn't have access to breast milk otherwise. That is an enormous help in those circumstances. And, you know, I've spoken to NICU nurses about it, about like the importance of having access to that resource and the sort of amazing altruism of the people who donate that breast milk. There is a larger group of breast milk banks that market themselves in the same way as sort of these altruistic not-for-profit entities. And they generally pay a few dollars an ounce for your time if you 
donate, and I'm using scare quotes here, which I recognize don't work on a podcast, if you donate your breast milk, and then they turn around and they either sell it at a great markup or they make breast milk products out of it, right? So it's not, it's no longer sort of just used as breast milk, but it's uh, changed chemically to alter it in some way to make other sorts of products, which are sold at a very high markup. So these companies are for-profit companies that are sort of tapping into this idea of maternal altruism. Of course, you want to donate your excess breast milk. Of course, you want to do this, right? And then again, the people who are making money aren't the people who are doing the labor of producing the breast milk. They're the milk bank aggregators. So that's the second thing. And then the third thing, which I think you sort of mentioned, is there's an enormous sort of black gray market for breast milk, right? Uh, You can sign on to your local Facebook moms group. I guarantee you, you're going to be, you know, seeing people um, giving, selling to people they know or selling to people they meet in their communities online. Um, These obviously have problems of their own, which is if you are selling something that is going to be consumed and often consumed right by an infant who is medically vulnerable, it's not regulated. There's been a lot of studies that suggest this type of milk buying and sharing comes along with a risk of contamination and um, the passage of infectious diseases and all sorts of problems. Um, but it's it's the the, the main point is it is the wild west out there when it comes to uh, the sort of market for breast milk and what is happening. So in those first two categories, are they like pasteurizing? Like, how are they ensuring that the breast milk is healthy and like clean? Yeah, I mean, so it's it's mostly an industry that regulates itself. But yes, right. Pasteurizing the milk, test, testing the milk as it comes in, that sort of stuff generally is happening when we're talking about these big milk banks in a way that it's not when you're buying breast milk on Facebook. Yeah. It's it, it, it like, I just could not believe that like adults were on like in Facebook groups, like buying breast milk to drink because yeah. they, it's like a protein shake. I was like, are you kidding? Like, is this, is this real? Yeah. And, and uh, I will add that there is also like a thriving kink community around this also. Oh. Of course there is. There, there, there's, there's a thriving kink community around everything. Yeah. Like everything, like anything you can name has a kink community. Yeah. Um, I'm working on a paper about human trafficking. Yeah. Um, and I started having to have the librarians do the searches for me because I couldn't stand what would come up on my computer. And I learned there, there are some kink communities I did not want to know about just from trying to do legal research. So I, you know, working in the area I do, I often think if someone saw my Google search history, they would be deeply concerned. Yeah. Um, yeah. I also am giving the disclaimer, like I am doing legal research. Like there, there should be a button you can check. Like I'm an academic in this area. Yeah. This is like, serious research. Yeah. Like I'm trying to figure out like the law behind people being trafficked. I'm not trying to like watch people be trafficked, but there's a difference. Yeah. There's a major difference. There is. A okay. Difference. So to get now I'm getting into what, you know, I've been occupied by since May and I'm sure you have been occupied by since May, which is Dobbs and how it is impacting everything. Everything. Um, And so anytime I talk to someone about Dobbs, we've done three or four episodes that have kind of touched on Dobbs in different ways. I would like to hear how you feel it impacts your work and like what things about Dobbs you're most concerned about. I mean, I would echo your sentiment, which is really sense. 
I mean, definitely since the leaked draft, but but certainly since the actual Dobbs decision. This has sort of been my world. Um, how it affects my work. Honestly, you know, I'm a relatively junior scholar. And I think five years ago, if I would have envisioned what I wanted to write about and what I wanted to sort of focus on in the length of my career, abortion rates actually wouldn't have been top top of the list. Um, so I started my practice and I started writing about more like pregnancy discrimination and breastfeeding protections and sort of pregnancy more generally. And now I feel like we're at an all hands on deck moment and that um, all the people sort of working in the reproductive justice arena have to be in this fight and recognizing as depressing as it is that this is going to be the fight of my lifetime, right? That it's not going to be a quick fight. Um, So just thinking about sort of my own work and Dobbs changed everything, right? So this is, this is what I'm focused on now for the foreseeable future. Um, well, yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. I would not view myself as a reproductive justice scholar <laughs> at all. And here I am talking about Dobbs constantly. I, I would say you're a reproductive justice scholar. I know you write in this area. Um, I, I would say though, that like, how has, as far as like what I'm most concerned about with Dobbs, I'm going to get slightly more theoretical. So like, Certainly the sort of disproportionate impact that this decision will have on marginalized populations who already had sort of an impossible time accessing care is serious and practical and needs attention. My focus is on a a more amorphous, but I think more insidious worry that I feel like isn't being discussed as much. And it goes back to sort of the first part of our conversation. So you can think about the the Dobbs decision as reflecting an imposition on pregnant people's rights and bodies, right? At which it is. Um, or you can think about the decision reflecting a sort of funda- fundamental undermining of potentially pregnant people's status as full people with full legal rights, right? As fully human under the law. So we talked earlier about like the right to exclude. Uh, and it's we think about this like the right to exclude people from our body as this fundamental right that we are all afforded. So the right to refuse medical treatment or the right to decide on sort of end of life care, the right to self-defense, right? This right to exclude people from your body is so foundational to our idea of what it is to be a human person that if we are now saying, and I think Dobbs says that people with a potential for pregnancy no longer enjoy that fundamental right, I worry that we're not saying you're a person except for we're we're taking away this one type of right. I worry that what we're saying is you're not a full person, right? That we don't think about you as a full person with rights because we don't think about you as a person with this one foundational right we all agree is so important to humanity. Um, and I, I think that's going to have repercussions much farther than abortion. And it's, it's, a, it's much more chilling to me than lack of access to one very important, but one very important medical procedure. Um, I think we're going to see it in how it affects this sort of criminalization of pregnancy. Um, I'm working on a current project about sort of associations of, um, 
objectification of pregnant people and it increases in violence just generally against women. Um, so that is, that's sort of where my head is right now. Um, that, that concern, not just about lack of access to the procedure, but what lack of access to the procedure says about women's full status under the law. You know, I 100% agree with you, which is why I often say I'm not a reproductive justice scholar. I'm a comparative personhood scholar, because I think that's, that's always been the heart of the issue for me, um, even before it was the heart of the issue for other people. Um, and I think, you know, when I first started saying, I think we should think about fetuses in the same way we think about corporations and we should be putting personhood on a spectrum and thinking about, you know, are we saying this is like a human being that is subject and object? Or are we saying this is just an object in the way we're saying a corporation is an object with artificial personhood? Like, I think we have to think about personhood on a spectrum and think about precisely what we are doing. If we're de declaring fetus as persons or if we're taking away reproductive rights. Um, so I like to say, you know, uh, I care about abortion, but I care more about like, what are you saying about fetal persons in comparison to the person who is pregnant? Because I think that's, to me, that's the root of the issue. And I think enough people don't talk about it, which is why I have Megan here because she talks about <laughs> it. <laughs> I, I think you're exactly right, right? I think that for a lot of people who would say they were proponents of fetal personhood, they think you can sort of take the personhood of the pregnant person and plus one, right? But the our law doesn't really work that way. Our Our system of rights is fundamentally individual and is based on singular physically bounded autonomous bodies. So we don't really have a framework to think about full fetal personhood in conjunction with full pregnant person personhood. Um, and, and I really worry that the more we talk about the first thing, the more the second thing just becomes uh, a bit of a mirage. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And that gets into my next question. So do you think Dobbs has or has the potential to convey some ownership of a pregnant person's body or the fetus to the government? Because if, if we are having this conflicting personhood, um, I think it turns one or the other into a commodity. Um, and so my question for you is, what, do you think it does too? And like, which one is the commodity, the fetus or the, the pregnant person? That's a great question. Um, I, I do think you know, ownership might be too strong of word, but like right of use, right? That the that the government through Dobbs is basically announcing that it has a right to utilize the bodies of pregnant people to do what? To produce babies, um, right? To sustain fetal life with the goal of producing babies, which is interesting because the government has never articulated very specifically the scope and nature of that interest, uh, which is pretty wild when you think about it, right? Like what exactly is the nature of the government interest in babies? Um, and certainly like you can, you could talk, you could think, you could think through and talk through what that interest might look like. But I think what's uh, very troubling to me. And this is troubling in Dobbs. And it was troubling, honestly, sort of in the entire line of abortion jurisprudence is the government has never really articulated the scope of that interest. And um, I think that sort of remains to be seen. 
Um, so I, I, I'm not sure if it communicates ownership of women's bodies. I do think it communicates ownership of sort of women's labor, that use of women's bodies. Um, and I think what it means about sort of who owns the, the bodies of babies, who has rights over the bodies of babies is still strangely an open question. Yeah. I mean, I guess maybe it's more of a lease. Um, I, I ask cause I've been toying with this in my head and I was like, well, you know, do I, assi- can I assign a dollar value to this? Um, cause I am a business professor. So I'm like, what's the number, number right? Yeah. Like number, but it's, you know, when you look at what the, what these states say is, you know, it's immoral to kill and we are protecting life is their argument. Um, but every other time we talk about protecting life, it's a person that is not living inside of another person. It's a person that's like living and breathing out in the world. And I, I kind of feel like no one has thought this through. I don't think they've, they've, you know, thought it through to its conclusion, or maybe they have, and they don't care. I just don't know what to do with it personally. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right, right? They're saying we have an obligation to protect life. And the way that we are expressing our obligation is saying you, private citizen, who has no interest in this, we're assuming this person does not wish to be pregnant, right? Uh, You must perform the, again, dangerous, crazy, risky labor entitled to reflect our interest in protecting this life. Um, which is a, it's a, it's a unique thing, pregnancy. Um, so I, yeah, I, I don't think we've fully thought through the state interest here. Now, how do you think Dobbs impacts surrogacy? Um, I saw a tweet yesterday, um, that like reproduced a memo that said some of the right to life organizations specifically said like, don't attack IVF, don't attack surrogacy for a couple of years, like as their strategy. Um, and I think it's because they, like I, I automatically went there. Like, what about IVF and what about surrogacy? And I think they think, you know, uh, all of us scholars are doing the same. And so they don't want to make it an issue, but you know, what are your thoughts on Dobbs and surrogacy and even like IVF? Yeah. I mean, I think that there is, uh, we're sort of headed for a collision here. Um, when it comes to the regulation of abortion and the regulation of all types of assisted reproductive technology and surrogacy. Um, And in very sort of practical mundane ways, like the enforceability of abortion clauses and surrogacy contracts, right? That's going to be, have to be something that's litigated now in states that are, you know, not friendly to abortion access. Um, I think it's also just it's it's fascinating to me that the regulation of pregnancy is happening on what feels like to a lot of people two separate tracks but as i think you are pointing out it's not they're all interrelated right so we have this huge sort of anti-choice movement that's pushing for fetal personhood and increasing regulation and increasingly draconian ab- abortion restrictions and all of that stuff. And on the other side, we have a fertility industry that serves mostly wealthy white women that is sort of do whatever you want, right? Create as many embryos as you want and put them on ice forever. Um, and we have tons of frozen embryos in this country that are just sitting in freezers, right? And I think that these things are all a piece, right? They're all about how we conceptualize motherhood, who should become a mother, 
who can't, who's, you know, who should be permitted to become a mother, what sort of mothering is the correct sort of mothering. Um, but if we pass a law aiming to restrict abortion that says fetuses are people, it says fetuses are people or embryos are people even, right? If we're talking about life at conception, embryos are people. And then all of a sudden, lots of practices that have gone largely unregulated in the fertility industry are open to regulation and uh, restrictions in a way that uh, populations who are not used to being restricted are not going to like. So I think, I mean, I think it's very savvy, right, of the anti-choice community to say, don't touch don't touch any of that. Don't touch any of the uh, the AR stuff yet, um, because they realize it's going to be very politically unpopular with people who have political power. Mm-hmm. Well, and I just think about, you know, does it mean that every fetus in a freeze, every embryo in a freezer is now a person like, you know, is is the embryo going to fill out a census? I mean, is the clinic going to fill out a census form and say, you know, I'm essentially an orphanage of X children, X million children? Yeah. The practical implications are crazy, right? Yeah. Just, I yeah. mean, just the, the the paperwork, just the mundane thinking through all of the regulations and laws that we have that affect people affecting all the frozen embryos in this country is, it's a staggering thought. And even just the disposal and using them for scientific testing and, you know, all, all these things, you know, does that totally go away? Or is that already illegal in a state like Texas? Is that already illegal, you know, in some states and, and you know? Being the the business person, I think, are we going to have arbitrage, right? Am I going to, is everyone going to put all their embryos in California? <laughs> and I, I will say like, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm out of the business of making babies now. I'm happy with the two I've got. Um, but I have, I'm, you know, I'm in the time of my life where I know a lot of people who are in the process and I can say for certain that I know people who have traveled to other states to undergo fertility services that are technically available in their own state so that they do not run into any of the sort of post-Dobbs regulation of uh, reproduction that is happening. So like, I think it's happening now. Um, And I think it's just, it's just going to grow. I think it's the smart thing to do. I mean, I have friends and I've said, I don't know that I would do IVF in Texas. Like, I, I just, it's not a legal opinion. It's a, it's more of a, because I can't answer your question. Um, if you can afford to drive to another state or fly to another state, you're already paying a hundred K to do this IVF, buy a plane ticket too, right? Yeah. Like just. It's already a process fraught with uncertainty. I mean, just biological uncertainty. Why would you add legal uncertainty on top of it? Yeah. And it, and it, the real problem is I cannot answer your question. Like. Yeah. And, and anytime I can't answer a question as a lawyer, it gives me, you know, palpitations. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and particularly because like, this is my area, right? So I will be doing interviews and people are like, well, what is the answer to this? And I'm like, I cannot answer that question for you. And anyone who tells you they can answer that question about what exactly is going to happen or how exactly this new policy or law is going to be interpreted is lying to you. Um so yes, I, even in my area of expertise, right? I'm having to do a lot of not sure. It depends. We're going to have to see, um, which is all, I agree, not a place I love. Yeah. Now, my last question before we get into some scholarship is: um, Do you think it could also impact parenting? And and the reason I started to think about that, you know, and and like how people with wanted babies um, are are governed, and what made me, what it made me think about 
was the 90s when we had drug testing, a whole lot of drug testing of pregnant women who definitely wanted their children, mostly low-income women of color, um, in part because the state wanted to protect the best interests of the child. Um, and so I've been questioning, like, you know, if, if we declare a fetus as person, does this state interest in best interest of the child start at conception somehow that it can, you know, your decisions made in pregnancy could somehow impact whether you're allowed to keep your child when it gives, when you give birth to it and, you know, all kinds of other things, but I'm not a family law person. So thought I would ask your opinion. Yeah. So I want to, I want to update your research a little bit, which is your right, right. That like in the the eighties and the nineties with the sort of crack epidemic and the moral panic that went along with it, all of a sudden we started being very concerned about prenatal drug use and criminalizing poor, mostly women of color for sort of choices in pregnancy for, for wanted pregnancies. Um, that has not stopped. It's actually gotten a lot worse. So the, the sort of racial makeup of people who are being criminalized for pregnancy has changed. Obviously we still have disproportionate harm in black and brown communities, but we also just have like a lot of sort of poor white women, um, caught up in the opioid epidemic who are being criminalized. Um, there are places in this country where prosecutors are bringing, I mean, hundreds of these types of cases. Um, and the, the really sort of the, and in turn, fascinating thing as an academic and the terrifying thing is like a human person, um, is that there's no actual reasonable line to draw between saying, oh, we are going to prosecute you or criminalize you because you are engaging in a behavior that is um, potentially risky for a pregnancy and just limiting that to like a particular type of drug use, right? So we've had instances where women were criminally prosecuted because they were pregnant and weren't wearing a seatbelt. Um, we have this case in Alabama where a woman who was pregnant was shot in the stomach. She herself was shot and she was criminally prosecuted because she allegedly started the fight Wow! that resulted in her being shot. So she put her fetus at risk by engaging in risky behavior. The risky behavior being just like engaging in a physical altercation with another person that resulted in her being shot and she was charged, right? So there, we have this universe where if we assume that your sort of choices about your body in pregnancy are subject to state oversight and regulation, which we are, we have been in that world, but we're increasing in that, increasingly in that world in a, in a post-ops framework, then there's no reason to draw the line any particular place, right? So smoking cigarettes is really damaging to pregnancy. Um, eating unnutritious food, being too stressed when you're pregnant. I mean, the, right? anyone who's been pregnant knows the list of things that you're not supposed to do while you're pregnant is very long. Um, so if we're in a world now where the state can legally intervene then there's no principled reason that they can't legally intervene for a whole host of things that extend far beyond uh, drug use. This is, a very, this is a very, very important po point that you're making because, you know, I, I think that people believe that everyone is totally free, right, in America and that there isn't this danger of you know, like there are these horror stories of women being strapped to hospital beds because they're engaging in high risk behavior while they're pregnant. 
Um, and, and people think it's not possible or that, oh, that only happens in Texas or that only happens oh, in no. Alabama. But like, oh, that's no, the no. kind that of stuff. happens in a lot of places. Yeah. Like, you know, there are lots of stories out of California about mm-hmm. um, women who are addicted to drugs being, you know, strapped to beds while they're pregnant so they don't use drugs. So yeah. I think it's it's an important point to make that, um, and that I like to make in general about like Dobbs kind of just solidifying things that have already happened. Right. Yeah, yeah. That, you know, there, there are lots of things that have been happening to pregnant women that have not been okay for a very long time. Can um, I tell you my favorite example of this? Yes. Yes. That you can. Is always, I think, surprising to a lot of people. Um, advanced directives, right? Living wills in, you know, in, in all the states, there's some sort of way that you can express interest as far as end of life care and what you want and don't want. In the majority of states, including in a lot of states that we would think of as sort of progressive or supportive of reproductive justice, reproductive rights generally, if you are a pregnant woman and you become sort of incapacitated such that your advanced directive living will would normally kick into action, in a majority of states, they can completely ignore your wishes and just keep you and ignore your wishes, ignore the wishes of your spouse or next kin, right? And just keep you on life support for as long as they want until and unless the baby, right, is able to be born. Um, In some states, that's true. Even if you put in your living will, even if I am pregnant, I want to, I want life support discontinued. They can totally override that. And there are horrific stories of women being kept on life support and their families battling, right? Because they're just a little bit pregnant and their bodies are literally decomposing, right? And the state will not take them off life support. They're literally being used as incubators against their expressed wishes. And that's, again, that is the majority of states that invalidate the advanced directives of pregnant people. That's not a minority position. And that's been happening for decades. Uh, that's terrifying. I, mean, I know. Sorry. Yeah, it's yeah, very yeah. dark. I'm sorry. I write about very dark things. Well, and I think it's important to let people know about very dark things because it's it's one of those moments when, you know, the state elections matter, the local, all the elections matter because these, all the elections. Yeah. These are the things that are going on the books and you don't know until you don't want to find out about that until when it's the worst case scenario. Right. Like you know, it's, yeah. Well, I think a lot of families are blindsided because they assume, especially if there is an existing advanced directive, right? They assume that their wishes will carry the day and are very surprised to find that that is not legally the case always. All right. Now I want to shift a little bit and talk about, uh, two of your articles in particular that inspired me to, um, have you on this episode. One is reproductive due process, which, won the WALS award, which is the American Association of Law Schools, and is this amazing kind of like experimental thought piece, which I'm going to ask you later, like how that applies post-Dobbs, whether it still works. And, less, of, less of a thing. <laughs> yeah. And your book review of Maxine Eichner's work, The Market Cannot Be Your Mother. Um, I'd like to get in depth first uh, with your proposals in reproductive due process. Uh, first, what's the premise of the article? Just so that folks know like why it was so groundbreaking. Okay. So the article was written before Dobbs, but I actually think it's possibly more relevant in the sort of 
uh, post-Dobbs period when the Supreme Court has said that states can lawfully compel you to sort of gestate and give birth. Um, so if the government, um, if the government interest in fetal life is, I'm sorry, I'm going to back up. I'm going to start somewhere else. I'm going to start somewhere else. Okay. The article explores the basis for reproductive rights under a procedural due process framework. So under sort of Roe and Casey, right, like the pre-Dobbs world, the right to abortion was situated in substantive due process. And I don't know if your audience is probably not all uh, legal academics, so I'm going to try and do a quick and dirty on this here. But um, substantive due process basically says that no matter how much process the government provides you, right, it can't deprive people of certain fundamental rights, period, right? There are just certain rights that are implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. The government can't deprive you of those things. Procedural due process says something sort of different. It says the government is permitted to deprive you of some categories of individual rights, as long as the processes and procedures that it follows before and after the deprivation are fair or just. So the government can't imprison you without a trial. Uh, It can't terminate your government benefits without some type of notice and hearing that it is going to terminate those benefits. Um, It can't take your land to build a new highway unless it pays you a sort of fair market value for that land right? The government can deprive you of rights, but it has to do so in a way that's procedurally fair. What the article does is argue that um, if the government is sort of compelling gestation and birth, that it is in fact depriving you of some combination of property and liberty, going back to our early discussion, right? How exactly we think about that is a little squishy, but certainly there is some deprivation of property and or liberty that's happening by compelling you to continue a pregnancy that you would otherwise terminate. Um, And if that's the case, then the government is is obligated to think through these process rights in the same way that it would be obligated to think through these process rights for any other deprivation. Um, So, and, and what that looks like is sort of the meat of the paper. Right. So what would it look like to provide notice? Maybe it would look like comprehensive sex education or what would it look like to provide a pre-deprivation hearing? Maybe the government's interest in fetal life in a particular circumstance isn't that compelling because there's some sort of lethal fetal abnormality. Right. Like you should not be compelled to carry a pregnancy because the asserted government interest in a particular circumstance doesn't actually apply to you. Right. You need you need access to a hearing to make that argument. Um, maybe it looks like some sort of uh, financial compensation for doing the labor that the government is requiring of you. So the, the paper basically just sort of takes seriously process rights in the reproductive justice space and thinks through what that might what might that look like if we assume for purposes of arguing that the that the state can force you to to continue a pregnancy okay, let's assume it can force you to continue a pregnancy. What does that look like? And so, you know, I actually think your article, like I've been look, I, I've been, I have some papers in the works post-Dobbs. Um, and as I was reading the article again, post-Dobbs, I think that it makes your argument stronger, right? I think it makes the premise of the paper stronger. I almost feel like it's a framework that we need to think through in a post-Dobbs world. Um, but I'd love to think, are you planning to write an update? Like, what are you doing with it post-Dobbs? Yeah, and you know, I uh, I don't want to pat myself on the back too strenuously, but I sort of agree with you that I like, like this paper even more now that we're in this world because 
there is, there is an absolute, there are jurisdictions in this country right now where you can be compelled to do this dangerous, risky work on behalf of this sort of amorphous state interest. Um, I've been thinking a lot about diving down, and I talk about this a little bit in the paper, but diving down more specifically into the analogy with uh, conscription into military service. Mm. So the government can do that, right? They can force people to fight in its wars. That's something that it is legally allowed to do. Um, But there are a lot of sort of guardrails to that insistence that you are conscripted into the military. Um, So you get to argue for conscientious objector status, right? That's a thing that is available to you. Uh, You get to argue that for some reason you are physically or mentally unfit in a way that would make it particularly unfair for you to be conscripted into military service. Um, And certainly like uh, you don't have to fight the government's wars for free. Right. You're you're paid. You are housed. You are provided with medical care, often for the length of your whole life, not just the length of your compelled service. So I think my next project might talk about that sort of analogy a little more specifically and say, okay, we're in a world where the government can say we're using your body in the service of our interest. Great. What are the other types of procedural protections that attach in that type of universe and sort of trying to make, I mean, obviously there are differences, right? Pregnancy and war are different things, but um, because there's no nothing that's perfectly like pregnancy, we have to sort of use the, the, use the analogies that are available to us. You know, I like the war analogy. The analogy I've been using, again, I think with the business brain is takings, but right. I like the conscription into war analogy a little better than taking simply because you know, there are times when you could be conscripted into the military and you're sitting in an office filing paperwork. And there are times you could be conscripted into the military and you're literally on the front lines. And, and you, you don't know, know what preg- you're going to get all the time. Right, right. And pregnancy is kind of the same. Like you could have an easy pregnancy where it's like, you know, I have a friend who was doing hot yoga like two days before she gave birth. God bless her. Have, right. But <laughs> have friends who've been on bed rest for three months. Right. And yeah. so the same kind of unpredictability when the, when the government's forcing you to do something, mm-hmm. you know, maybe that's a better analogy than my takings analogy. All right. So we've only got a couple of minutes left. So I, I can't get into the article. Sadly, I always run out of time on the show. Um, but to close, I, I talk too much. Well, I, I always talk too much. Um, it's a law professor problem, right? It is. Um, so I would like you to, to say, you know, as your closing comment, um, what do you think states are going to do to reconcile their current policies with Dobbs? Like, you know, I think there are states out there that are thinking about the things we're thinking about. Um, so do you have any ideas or any foresight into what folks, what states are talking about doing um, as they see these conflicts with like their IVF policies versus their, you know, reproductive rights policies. I, well, I would say what I think is going to happen, and I'm going to go dark again, is that the groups with political power are going to cra- carve out exceptions for themselves. Um, so we're going to see less regulation in the assisted reproductive technology space and more and more and more regulation criminalizing vulnerable populations in pregnancy. What I would like to see is sort of a convergence theory uh, approach where we recognize that all these issues are connected and that we all need to fight for reproductive justice because any encroachment on reproductive justice will eventually come back to harm everyone who has the potential for reproduction. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Megan, for being on the show. Thank Thank you so much for having me. 
You're welcome. Thank you everyone for listening to Getting Common. If you ever miss an episode, you can catch the rebroadcast anywhere podcasts are streamed. And you can find me on social media. I am at Carla C on all platforms. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Megan. And I will see you all next week. Thank you for tuning in to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Please join us again next Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another thoughtful discussion.